so often throughout the course of history. Patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, and I appreciate you tuning in here on the America Out Loud Network. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, why do you listen to programs like this? Seriously, I'm not trying to push you up against, well, why do you listen to this garbage? Why do you you entertain such subversive thoughts? I'm going to suggest, and I don't want you to feel bad or feel marginalized, but you are probably part of the minority of people who are not just inwardly questioning what's going on, but but very actively questioning and, and likely opposing what's happening around us. And I, that's pure supposition on my part. I'm just I'm just guessing, but uh, but I feel fairly safe in saying you are not one of the people who feels safer running with the herd, and is uh, more likely to trust your own judgment and trust your ability to sift fact from fiction and sort truth from error. And I think that's a that's a that's a quality that uh, that is worthy of some celebration. So, if you would, may I reach over and pat you on the back and tell you, thank you for being willing to do this. Because if we have learned anything over the last couple of years, it's that a very solid majority of people will go along with whatever the ruling class is telling us to do. In fact, they won't even be disturbed for a moment by uh, by independent thought. And the problem with this is, I mean, I understand why they're doing it, okay? I'm, I'm not suggesting that they're somehow they are less than us or they are, they're evil or they're stupid, you know, for doing so. They simply don't want to pay the price of being a dissident, particularly an open voice of dissent, at a time where uh, dissent is punished, you know, through either deplatforming or just people calling you names, questioning your motives, or otherwise trying to ostracize you and treat you as an outsider, the problem here is evil goes unpunished when enough people are averse to standing up against it or at least speaking out against it or refusing to play along with it. And I don't know what the size of the population is. I'm pretty confident it's, it's a majority at this point. You could show them right to their faces what the ruling class is currently doing to us and they will still continue to grasp at straws for some reason, any reason at all, to believe that somehow it's right and it's normal and, and, and you're wrong for even questioning it. And we're not just talking, you know, faceless strangers on the street. This is probably happening even within your families. 
I know because I see it happening with, within my family as well. Tom Woods, in a recent email, pointed out, he says, I bet that brings the ruling class more pleasure when, when they see that people are willing to follow them, even when they're doing really reprehensible things right out in the open. And he says, I want to be much more optimistic than this. I really do. But there are a lot of folks who just want to fit in. They want to be part of the crowd. They want to be accepted and, and follow whatever the elites are telling them to follow. So whatever the latest cause is, well, they're going to be there with whatever colored flag or whatever slogan is in fashion at the moment. Now, again, the danger here is that most of the elites favor using state power to bend the public to their will. So virtually any cause that the non-elites who crave acceptance latch onto will end up promoting the expansion of that state power. And they're being trained to view individuals like you and me as outcasts, contemptible, barely human, a threat. So I don't know how much good it does to, to try to debate people. Maybe if you've tried this, you've you found it's really hard to, to debate anybody into, you know, accepting or recognizing or even acknowledging the truth. I mean, none of us like to be wrong. That includes me, too. Now, you and I are likely the ones who are speaking out and being, you know, dissenters. But there's another group out there, and I don't know how big this third group is. This is the group that may be outwardly conforming, but inwardly They've got a bad case of what's called cognitive dissonance. They are trying to hold two conflicting thoughts, and they're questioning what's being done. And this is why I'm happy to speak to unpopular topics and to to bring uncomfortable subjects to the forefront. It's not because I'm a sadist and I want to inflict pain or misery on people who you know, are being confronted with something they really don't want to see. It's because I know that there are people out there who have doubts in their heads that are well-founded, and they need to know that they're, they're not crazy. They need to know that there are others who think as they do and would support them and will help, you know, will have their back should they decide to stand up. These are the people who are watching things unfold around us, and They may still be concerned that the price of being openly dissident is uh, just unacceptably high. But they need to know that knowing and telling the truth still matters. And in a nutshell, that's, that's why I do what I do. Now, having said that, I succumbed to the latest, uh, you know, shift from, okay, what's the outrage of the day? What's the, the big story of the day? And, and you know, when uh, Will Smith smacked Chris Rock on the uh, Oscars, I don't watch the Oscars. Hollywood and I have, have nothing in common. They really don't have anything to offer me. And frankly, like uh, Ricky Gervais said a few years ago, uh, you know, your booze mean nothing to me. I've seen what you people cheer for. You consider these are the people who enabled, you know, monsters like Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, I don't really want to have that much in common with them. But like a lot of people, you know, when when the news cycle went to, oh, did you see the slap that took place on the Oscars? And suddenly it's, you know, toxic masculinity and, you know, violence and all this kind of stuff. And it became this big debate. I was guilty, just like a cat following the laser pointer dot, you know, that somebody else is pointing. The media is pointing the laser pointer. I'm the cat. And I found myself talking about it now. I tried to limit it to a few pithy remarks here and there. I think the funniest one I saw was, well, thank goodness Chris Rock didn't crack a joke about Alec Baldwin's wife. Oh, that could have been really ugly. 
But the bottom line is it was a marvelous distraction. And if you note how seamlessly we've gone from distraction to distraction to distraction, at some level you want to start asking, are we being manipulated or is someone pulling our strings and otherwise trying to keep us looking in a direction of their choosing as opposed to being aware of what's happening around us? I've got a great article here by John W. Whitehead and his wife, Nisha Whitehead. Humilitainment, how to control the citizenry through reality TV distractions. This seems especially appropriate in light of what's happened here in the last few days. He starts with a quote from Professor Neil Postman. Big Brother does not watch us by his choice. We watch him by ours. When a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when, in short, people become an audience and their public business becomes a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility. End quote. Now, John Whitehead says, look, once again, the programming has changed. Just like clockwork, the wall-to-wall news coverage of the latest crisis has shifted gears. We've gone from COVID-19 lockdowns to the Trump-Biden election drama to Russia-Ukraine crisis to the Katanji Brown-Jackson confirmation hearings to Will Smith's on-camera assault of comedian Chris Rock at the Academy Awards ceremony. The distractions, distortions, and political theater just keep coming. And the ongoing reality show that is life in the American police state feeds the citizenry's voracious appetite for titillating soap opera drama. Much like the fabricated universe in Peter Weir's 1998 film, The Truman Show, in which a man's life is the basis for an elaborately staged television show aimed at selling products and procuring ratings. The political scene in the United States has devolved over the years into a carefully calibrated exercise in how to manipulate polarize, propagandize, and control a population. This is the magic of reality TV programming that passes for politics today. As long as we're distracted, entertained, occasionally outraged, always polarized, but largely uninvolved and content to remain in the viewer's seat, we'll never manage to present a unified front against tyranny or against government corruption and ineptitude in any form. The more that's beamed at us, the more inclined we are to settle back in our comfy recliners and become passive viewers rather than active participants as unsettling, even frightening events unfold. We don't even have to change the channel when the subject matter becomes too monotonous. That's taken care of for, taken care of for us by the programmers, the corporate media. Living is easy with eyes closed, observed John Lennon, and that's exactly what reality TV that masquerades as American politics programs the citizenry to do, to navigate the world with their eyes shut. I really love this line, as long as we're viewers, we'll never be doers. Now, John Whitehead says, studies suggest that the more reality TV people watch, and he says, I would posit that it's all reality TV, entertainment news included, the more difficult it becomes to distinguish between what is real and what is carefully crafted farce. His point being, we the people are watching a lot of TV. On average, Americans spend five hours a day watching television. By the time we reach age 65, we're watching more than 50 hours of television a week. And that number increases as we get older. And reality TV programming consistently captures the largest percentage of TV watchers every season by an almost two-to-one ratio. 
Now, this doesn't bode well for a citizenry able to sift through masterfully produced propaganda in order to think critically about the issues of the day, whether it's fake news peddled by government agencies or foreign entities. Those who watch reality shows tend to view what they see as the norm. Thus, those who watch shows characterized by lying, aggression, and meanness not only come to see such behavior as acceptable and entertaining, but they also mimic the medium. And this holds true whether the reality programming is about the antics of celebrities in the White House, in the boardroom, or in the bedroom. It's a phenomenon known as humilitainment. A term coined by media scholars Brad Waite and Sarah Booker, humilitainment refers to the tendency for viewers to take pleasure in someone else's pain, humiliation, and suffering. Humilitainment largely explains not only why American TV watchers are so fixated on reality TV programming, but how American citizens, largely insulated from what's really happening in the world around them by layers of technology, entertainment, and other distractions, are being programmed to accept the government's brutality, surveillance, and dehumanizing treatment as things happening to other people. The ramifications for the future of civic engagement, political discourse, and self-government are incredibly depressing and demoralizing. This explains how we keep getting saddled with leaders in government who are clueless about the Constitution and out of touch with the needs of the people they were appointed to represent. And this is also what happens when an entire nation, bombarded by reality TV programming, government propaganda, and entertainment news, becomes systematically desensitized and acclimated to the trappings of a government that operates by fiat and speaks in a language of force. Ultimately, the reality shows, the entertainment news, the surveillance society, the militarized police, and the political spectacles have one common objective. To keep us divided, distracted, imprisoned, and incapable of taking an active role in the business of self-government. Look behind the political spectacles, the reality TV theatrics, the sleight-of-hand distractions and diversions, and the stomach-churning, nail-biting drama, and you'll find that there is a method to the madness. We have become guinea pigs in a ruthlessly calculated, carefully orchestrated, chillingly cold-blooded experiment in how to control a population and advance a political agenda without much opposition from the citizenry. John Whitehead says this is mind control in its most sinister form. How do you change the way people think? Well, you start by changing the words they use. He says, in totalitarian regimes where conformity and compliance are enforced at the end of a loaded gun, the government dictates what words can and cannot be used. In countries where tyranny hides behind a benevolent mask and disguises itself as tolerance, the citizens censor themselves, policing their words and thoughts to conform to the dictates of the mass mind. Even when the motives behind this rigidly calibrated reorientation of societal language appear well-intentioned, discouraging racism, condemning violence, denouncing discrimination and hatred, inevitably the end result is the same. Intolerance, indoctrination, infantilism, the chilling of free speech, and the demonizing of viewpoints that run counter to the cultural elite. As George Orwell recognized in Times of Universal Deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Orwell understood only too well the power of language to manipulate the masses. In Orwell's 1984, Big Brother does away with all undesirable and unnecessary words and meanings, even going so far as to routinely rewrite history and punish thought crimes. In this dystopian vision of the future, the thought police serve as the eyes and ears of Big Brother, 
Well, the Ministry of Peace deals with the war and defense, and the Ministry of Plenty deals with economic affairs, rationing and starvation. The Ministry of Love deals with law and order, torture and brainwashing. And the Ministry of Truth deals with news, entertainment, education, and art, or propaganda. The mottos of Oceania, war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. Now, John Whitehead writes, Orwell's big brother relied on newspeak to eliminate undesirable words, strip such words as remained of unorthodox meanings, and make independent, non-government-approved thought altogether unnecessary. Where we stand now is at the juncture of old speak, where words have meanings and ideas can be dangerous, and new speak, where only that which is safe and accepted by the majority is permitted. He says truth is often lost when we fail to distinguish between opinion and fact, and that is the danger we now face as a society. Anyone who relies exclusively on television or cable news hosts and political commentators for actual knowledge of the world is making a serious mistake. Unfortunately, since Americans have by and large become non-readers, television has become their prime source of so-called news. And this reliance on TV news has given rise to such popular news personalities who draw in vast audiences that virtually hang on their every word. In our media age, these are the new powers that be. Yet while these personalities often dispense the news like preachers used to dispense religion with power and certainty... They're little more than conduits for propaganda and advertisements delivered in the guise of entertainment and news. So given the preponderance of news as entertainment programming, it's no wonder that viewers have largely lost the ability to think critically and analytically and differentiate between truth and propaganda, especially when delivered by way of fake news criers and politicians. Whitehead says what television news cannot and should not or while it cannot and should not be completely avoided, the following suggestions will help you better understand the nature of TV news. These are really great suggestions, by the way. Number one, TV news is not what happened. Rather, it's what someone thinks is worth reporting. Although there are still some good TV journalists, the old art of investigative reporting has largely been lost. While viewers are often inclined to take what's reported by television news hosts at face value, It's your responsibility to judge and analyze what's reported. Number two, TV news is entertainment. There's a reason why the programs you watch are called news shows. It's a signal that the so-called news being delivered is a form of entertainment. In the case of most news shows, writes Neil Postman and Steve Powers in their insightful book, How to Watch TV News, The package includes attractive anchors, an exciting musical theme, comic relief, stories placed to hold the audience, the creation of the illusion of intimacy, and so on. Now, of course, the point of all this glitz and glamour is to keep you glued to the set so that a product can be sold to you. Even the TV news hosts get in on the action by peddling their own products, everything from their latest books to mugs and bathrobes. Although the news items spoon-fed to you may have some value... They're primarily a commodity to gather an audience, which in turn will be sold to advertisers. Number three, never underestimate the power of commercials, especially to news audiences. In an average household, the television set is on for over seven hours a day. Most people believing themselves to be in control of their media consumption are not really bothered by this. But TV is a two-way attack. It not only delivers programming to your home, it also delivers you, the consumer, to a sponsor. People who watch the news tend to be more attentive, educated, and have more money to spend. They are thus a prime market for advertisers. 
and sponsors spend millions on well-produced commercials. Such commercials are often longer in length than most news stories and cost more to produce than the news stories themselves. Moreover, the content of many commercials, which often contradicts the messages of the news stories, cannot be ignored. Most commercials are aimed at prurient interests in advocating sex, overindulgence, drugs, etc., which has a demoralizing effect on viewers, especially on children. Number four, it's vitally important to learn about the economic and political interests of those who own the corporate media. There are few independent news sources anymore. The major news outlets are owned by corporate empires. Number five, pay special attention to the language of newscasts. Because film footage and other visual imagery are so engaging on TV news shows, viewers are apt to allow language, what the reporter is saying about the images, to go unexamined. A TV news host's language frames the pictures, and therefore the meaning we derive from the picture is often determined by the host's commentary. TV, by its very nature, manipulates viewers. One must never forget that every television minute has been edited. The viewer does not see the actual event, but the edited form of the event. For example, presenting a one- to two-minute segment from a two-hour political speech and having a TV talk show host critique may be disingenuous. But such edited footage is a regular staple on news shows. Now add to that the fact that the reporters editing the film have a subjective view, sometimes determined by their corporate bosses, that enters in. Number six, Reduce by at least one-half the amount of TV news you watch. TV news generally consists of bad news, wars, torture, murders, scandals, and so forth. It cannot possibly do you any harm to excuse yourself each week from much of the mayhem projected at you on the news. Do not form your concept of reality based on television. TV news, it must be remembered, does not reflect normal everyday life. Studies indicate that a heavy viewing of TV news makes, the, makes people think the world is much more dangerous than it actually is. And finally, number seven. One of the reasons many people are addicted to watching TV news is that they feel they must have an opinion on almost everything, which gives the illusion of participation in American life. But an opinion is all that we can gain from TV news because it only presents the most rudimentary and fragmented information on anything. Thus, on issues, we really don't know much about what's actually going on. And, of course, we're expected to take what the TV news host says on an issue as gospel truth. But John White had asked, isn't it better to think for yourself? Add to this that we need to realize that we don't often have enough information from news sources to form a true opinion. How can that be done? Well, the answer is study a broad variety of sources, carefully analyze issues in order to be better informed, and question everything. He says the bottom line is simply this. Americans should be aware of, should beware rather of letting others, whether it be television, news hosts, political commentators, or media corporations do their thinking for them. So it's time to change the channel, tune out the reality TV show and push back against the real menace of the police state. He says, if not, we continue to sit back and lose ourselves in political programming and we will remain a captive audience to a farce that grows more absurd by the moment. I think there's a lot of truth in what John Whitehead is saying here. And I'm, I can only speak for myself here, so maybe you may be made of sterner stuff than I am. In fact, maybe that's, that's, a, that's a very distinct possibility. 
But I find that the more I immerse myself in trying to see what's going on, whether I don't watch TV news, but uh, dang it, Twitter is, is very addictive because you can catch a pretty strong overview of what's going on. But again, it's tiny little bites. And if I immerse myself too much in what's going on, oh, what's this? We have a, a video of uh, Ukrainian soldiers shooting captured Russian prisoners of war in the knees. You know, it's like it's it just corrodes your soul. So the idea that maybe uh, maybe watch half or less than what you've been watching isn't such a bad idea. I think above all, you got to remember, it's not called programming by accident. Someone is trying to steer your thinking. I think you should be holding the steering wheel. This is the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network. Along with a healthy immune system, clean air is vital for optimal health. According to the EPA, we spend 90% of our time indoors, where germs are most concentrated. It's essential to clean indoor air. Genesis is the only technology that quickly, safely, and effectively kills pathogens both in the air and on surfaces in seconds, reducing the viral load in any environment. The powerful, well-built Genesis Fogger produces a dry, ultra-fine mist using HOCL, which occurs naturally in our own immune systems. We'll be living with airborne diseases in the future. New viruses and antibiotic-resistant superbugs are no problem for Genesis. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash OUTLOUD. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Hey, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show here on the America Out Loud Network. Are you ready for some more hard truths? (laughs) Lacking sugar coating, but uh, delivered 
as kindly and lovingly as I possibly can. I don't know why it makes me think of a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, And I'm going to have to paraphrase this because I don't have it right in front of me. But essentially, he says, look, I speak to you as a friend. In other words, when I'm telling you these hard truths, I'm not telling you this because I am, you know, I want to inflict pain and suffering on you. And I want to make sure you feel, you know, very bad about yourself for not knowing this already. It's uh, he says, you know, your enemy will tell you the things that will keep you in the darkness or will keep you comfortable right up to your destruction. In fact, your enemy will flatter you into destruction. But Solzhenitsyn said, I speak to you as a friend, someone who is genuinely concerned and who loves you enough to share with you what even are hard truths, which I know you may want to push back on. You may resent the fact that, hey, why would you even bring that up? You know, this is, this is making me uncomfortable. So why would I do such a thing? Only because I believe the truth matters more than we know. And for those people who are part of that, uh, that small minority that just wants the truth, even if it hurts, that's who I'm speaking to. Now, maybe, maybe that's giving up, you know, a bigger potential audience. I mean, if I could say soft things that sound complimentary, you know, to everybody, hey, they'd come running. But the times that we live in, I think, require something more. And I'm willing to risk being unpopular, as are many of the other commentators that you'll hear on this network, willing to speak to those hard truths, shine the light into the darkness, even though it may cause some discomfort for people. I'm willing to be misunderstood. You don't have to agree. But I think it's important to speak the truth while we have the opportunity to do so. So, on that note, things seem to be coming to a head pretty rapidly in our world. Could we agree on that? I want to share with you a commentary from James Howard Kunstler. This was published on lewrockwell.com. What is to be done? And he covers a lot of territory in a very short time, but I think what he has to say here is worth knowing and worth considering as you try to sift fact from fiction and make sense of all the information coming at you. He starts with money, money, money everywhere along the trail for the Biden family. James Howard Kunstler says, The black hole of depravity known as Hunter Biden's laptop dilates ever wider as the rickety Joe Biden regime chugs towards its event horizon of disgrace and collapse, throwing off the jetsam of our nation's remnant honor in its toxic vapor trail. The memos and emails on the device could not be clearer. Joe Biden and his grifting family sold out their country. The mentally incompetent husk of a crooked old politician is owned by every foreign interest in his decaying orbit. And owned by well, by the, as well by the foul and perfidious Intel Mafia, lodged like a cancerous mass, eating away at what used to be known as the American government. He says, face it, this false president, installed by malignant forces aligned with his, allied rather with his party of chaos, is a menace to our nation. The Russia cleanup of Ukraine has exposed the operational base of the Biden family's flagrant crimes. The laptop confirms that Hunter's Rosemont Seneca Front Company invested in the chain of bioweapons labs set up by the CIA and Department of Defense and operated through their front company, MetaBiota, with tendrils reaching to the Wuhan, China, virology lab that was the most likely point of origin for SARS-CoV-2, a.k.a. COVID-19. Money, money, money everywhere along the trail for the Biden family. Fees for service from crooked Ukrainian oligarch Mykola Zlochevsky, chairman of Burisma, 
the gas company that provided walking around money for Hunter's insatiable drug habit and degenerate sexual adventures, more millions from shady sources in Russia, and then billions more from the boardrooms of Chinese companies connected with the intel and military arms of the CCP. If the American public had known of these entanglements, Joe Biden would certainly not have been the beneficiary of the engineered balloting irregularities that determined the 2020 election. But the public, still reeling from the mind effery of COVID-19, was left ignorant through the combined operations of the CIA's captured social networks, along with a tractable news media. Now, of course, the FBI had Hunter's laptop in its possession in January of 2020. And James Howard Kunstler asks, how is it possible that the device and all its incriminating contents were withheld as evidence in the momentous impeachment trial of Donald Trump, which, after all, was instigated by Mr. Trump's inquiring phone call about those very matters involving the Bidens and Mikola Zlochevsky? Answer, because the FBI was already rattled by the unraveling truth about its seditious role in the Russiagate folly. And the agency was wholly invested in the removal of Mr. Trump before top agency officials found themselves in grand juries, federal crimes on top of federal crimes by federal officials. And he asks, how do we stand for that? And they continued to sit on and hide the laptop through the first 15 months of Joe Biden's astoundingly calamitous term in office to the dangerous point that America has arrived today at the potential brink of a nuclear exchange with Russia, all a product of our decade-long interventions and machinations in sad sack Ukraine, a train wreck of foreign policy blunders that can only be explained as a product of the most extreme and ruinous organizational hubris seen since Germany's misadventure invading the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa, 1941. And now the suits in, the, in America's intel, state, and war offices are apparently thinking that the Joe Biden operation has got to be thrown overboard before it's too late to disassociate themselves from it and its slime trail of crime. All hinges on whether a percentage of the mesmerized American public, those buffaloed by the combined effects of woke hysteria and mass formation psychosis, might rouse from their induced trance and recognize the ominous shape that reality has assumed while their minds were hostage. Now listen close, because here's where he really kicks it into gear. Too many can see that everything now in American life is going south. Joe Biden has knocked the remaining props out from under the country's assumed standard of living. We are on track to go medieval in months, not years. No replacement parts for our machines. No money, or else money that's worthless. No food, no heat, no light, no getting from point A to point B, soon no hope. And if we're really unlucky, the very land itself and the things we've built upon it reduce to cinders and ash. But he says, one thing you must know, we are not entering the wishful robotic anti-utopia of social credit control, QR code management, and the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab transhumanism. We are veering rather off the rails into an epic historic political disorder, something much more perplexing than the clear-cut crack-up of the 1860s. In this new pandemonium, the best of us will remember what has been the best about us. Liberty, the rule of law, freedom of speech and the press, the dignity of work, our sense of obligation to a common good, and the decorum of truth-telling. 
His advice is for now, strive to stay sane against all the inducements of the wicked. Now, I'll admit, that's, I mean, that's some pretty straight-up truth. No sugar coating required. That's a 1,000-milligram red pill right there. But I don't disagree with James Howard Kunstler's analysis here. And I really love that last part about how strive to stay sane against all the inducements of the wicked. Because right now it sure seems like everything is being blasted at us to try to to get us to separate from our grip on reality, to come untethered so that we can be carried to and fro by whatever currents of, you know, political opinion they want to generate or stir up. Now, it takes courage to do so. It takes courage to maintain your connection to reality. And there's going to be a price that's associated with this. So I guess what I'm pointing out here is if, if you're not willing to suffer for your beliefs, you're not likely to prevail in this kind of, a, of an endeavor. You're, you're going to come untethered. The good news is, as much as it hurts to be attacked, to be um, unfairly judged or misrepresented or misunderstood, your skin thickens up pretty quickly. You will build the kind of psychological calluses necessary to shrug off attacks by people who are trying very hard to get you to just shut up and stop talking about or stop shining the light in a direction that they don't want you to shine it. And what's more, you will find that uh, even though our numbers seem pretty few, I don't, even, I don't have any clue how many people out there are actively dissenting. But you will find that uh, you will be led to those who likewise stand in truth with you. Sometimes they're going to come from unexpected directions. So don't look for somebody who's walking perfectly in lockstep. Truth seekers actually come from many different parts of the political spectrum. Find the common ground. Disregard the differences. Those are things that can be sorted out peacefully at another time. But keep speaking the truth. Someone out there somewhere is feeling very alone and isolated right now, and you may not even know who they are, but they will draw encouragement from what you're saying. They will strengthen their backbone when they know that, hey, other people think the way that I do. Other people recognize what I'm recognizing. And what I'm suggesting is you and I need to be the kind of people who can be counted on to do the right thing at all times, in all places, Regardless of how hard it is, integrity is is doing the right thing, even when it costs you opportunities that you could could easily obtain if you were just willing to, you know, lower your standards and do the wrong thing. So, yeah, you'll, you'll pay some opportunity costs in terms of, you know, popularity, sometimes monetary gain or even just acceptance by the crowd. By giving those things up, though, you're going to gain something that is infinitely more precious. And this is it. You will have peace of conscience. And not to sound morbid, but when all is said and done, when each of us arrives at the end of our life, however soon or however far down the road that may be, our conscience is the only thing that will accompany us into whatever comes next. And if your first time ever meeting your conscience face-to-face or getting acquainted with your conscience is when you're exiting this existence, 
that can be a pretty awkward time. On the other hand, if you are familiar with your conscience and you are at peace with your conscience and know that you're operating in harmony with your conscience, what more could you ask for? Sorry, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> that, that actually may have, I may have gone a little deeper than I, than I wanted to, but I think this matters. So let's, uh, let's talk for a moment about, uh, about fifth-generation warfare. For a lot of people, the very idea that a war is being waged against their mind is a very disturbing thought. You want some serious clarity on the matter? I'm going to recommend James Corbett. He has a wonderful Corbett report. He also has a great Substack account. And this article on your guide to fifth generation warfare is one of the most informative things I've come across recently. James Corbett says, we're in the middle of a world changing war right now. Oh, he says, I don't mean the war in Ukraine, the one that all the media are asking you to focus your attention on. Yes, that conflict continues to escalate, and every day there are new stories about provocations and threats that could lead to a nuclear exchange. But he says, that's not the war I'm referring to. And I don't mean the war in Yemen or other military conflicts that the media are ignoring entirely. Yes, these wars are every bit as bloody, gruesome, and devastating as the Russian invasion of Ukraine, if not more so. And they also risk an escalation into a broader geopolitical and geoeconomic crisis. But he says they're not the wars I'm referring to either. James Corbett says, no, the war I'm talking about is an even broader war. A war that's taking place everywhere on the globe, even as I write, and involves virtually everyone on the planet, young and old, male and female, military and civilian. It is the war of every government against its own population and every international institution against free humanity. Now, he says this is no ordinary war, however. Most of the victims of this warfare aren't even able to identify it as war, nor do they understand that they are combatants in it. It's called fifth-generation warfare. And he says, I'm here to tell you all about it. So what is fifth-generation warfare anyway? Come to think of it, what were the first four generations of warfare? Good questions. For an in-depth answer to the latter question, he says you'll want to read The Changing Face of War into the Fourth Generation. And he provides a link in this article. It's a 1989 article from Marine Corps Gazette, author, co-authored rather by William S. Lind. And he says you'll also want to watch the video presentation, William S. Lind and Philip Giraldi, Fourth Generation Warfare in the Deep State, especially the presentation by Lind from 13 minutes onward. So, in a nutshell, Lind's thesis is that the modern age of warfare began with the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, which Lynn opines gave the state a monopoly on war. And from that point on, modern warfare went through three generations. Namely, first-generation warfare, that's the tactics of line and column, developed in the era of the smoothbore musket. Second-generation warfare, the tactics of indirect fire and mass movement, developed in the era of the rifled musket, breech loaders, barbed wire, and the machine gun. And then third-generation warfare, the tactics of non-linear movement, including maneuver and infiltration, developed in response to the increase in battlefield firepower in World War I. This, according to Lind and his co-authors, brought us to the late 20th century, where the nation-state began to lose its monopoly on war and military combat returned to a decentralized form. In this era, the era of fourth-generation warfare, the lines between civilian and military become blurred. Armies tend to engage in counterinsurgency operations rather than military battles, 
And enemies are often motivated by ideology and religion, making psychological operations more important than ever. But James Corbett says some argue we've now entered a new era of warfare, namely fifth-generation warfare. And there's still a lot of debate about what defines fifth-generation warfare, how we know we're engaged in it, or even if it exists at all. For instance, William S. Lind, for one, rejects the concept. But various scholars have made their own attempts at defining fifth-generation warfare, like Dr. Wasim Ahmad Kurshi, who identifies it as the battle of perceptions and information, or Kiao Liang and Wang Xiao, let me try that again, Zhang Xiu of the People's Liberation Army, who write of the era of unrestricted warfare in which a relative reduction in military violence has led to an increase in political, economic, and technological violence. Now, if academic debates about the changing nature of warfare are your thing, then there's plenty of reading for you to do on the subject from the Handbook of Fifth Generation Warfare to a slew of academic articles, and he links to both of these resources. But he says, for the purposes of this editorial, I'm not interested in that debate. In fact, we're going to use a decidedly non-academic definition of fifth-generation warfare from an Al Jazeera article as our starting point. The basic idea behind this term, fifth-generation warfare, is that in the modern era, wars are not fought by armies or guerrillas, but in the minds of common citizens. Now, there are two important things to note about this definition. The first is that fifth-generation warfare is not waged against either standing armies of nation-states or guerrilla insurgents, but against everyday citizens. And the second is that this war is not being fought in a battlefield somewhere, but in the mind. Now, he says, I will expand the definition somewhat to include the fact that this war is being waged at all levels, not just the mental. But the gist of it is this. Fifth-generation warfare is an all-out war that's being waged against us all by our governments and the international organizations to which they belong. It is being waged each and every against each and every one of us right now, and it's a battle for full-spectrum dominance over every single aspect of your life. Your movements and interactions, your transactions, even your innermost thoughts, feelings, and desires. Governments the world over are working with corporations to leverage technology to control you down to the genomic level, and they will not stop until each and every person who resists them is subdued or eliminated. And he says the most incredible part of all this is so few even know that the war is taking place, let alone that they are a combatant in it. So the best way to understand this war is to look at some of the ways that it's being waged against us. Now before I move on, I just want to kind of ask you, gauge your your sense of how are you feeling about this right now? That little shiver going up your spine? Did you realize you were a veteran in this uh, war against reality? I think we're all kind of surprised to find that, uh, oh my word, yeah, we're all combatants. Once you're willing to embrace that knowledge, though, at least you can start to mount the kind of uh, either defensive moves or counterattacks to claim your, your mind as your own and not allow it to become an occupied territory by some hostile force. I know, there's a lot of, lot of war euphemisms here. I think they apply, though. Let's talk about information warfare. James Corbett says, stop me if you've heard this before, but this is an info war and the powers that be or the powers that shouldn't be, rather, are engaged in a war for your mind. Now, of course, you've heard of Infowars if you've been in the alternative media space for any length of time, and for good reason. 
information warfare is an absolutely essential part of the war on everyone that defines fifth-generation warfare. The most obvious way to understand this is to look at the actual military forces that are engaging in psychological operations against their own citizens. You'll remember, for instance, less than two years ago when the Canadian Armed Forces launched their brazen fake wolves psyop on the Canadian public, declaring that the scandemic presented them with a unique opportunity to test propaganda techniques on Canadians. Or you might recall a decade ago when the U.S. Army deployed an information operations unit against the U.S. Senate to manipulate visiting American senators into providing more troops and funding for the war. But it's not just out-and-out military operations by soldiers dressed up in camo fatigues that are part of this fifth-generation info war. In the War on Everyone, the establishment uses every means at its disposal to manipulate the public's perception. Thus, Richard Stengel, the former editor of Time who bestowed Time's Person of the Year dishonor on you back in 2006, is happy to chair a Council on Foreign Relations conversation in which he defends the U.S. government's use of propaganda against its own citizens. Or Hill and Knowlton, the PR firm hired by the Kuwaiti government to create the Naira deception in the first Gulf War, is retained by the World Health Organization in 2020 to identify celebrity influencers who could be used to amplify the scandemic messaging. Or the U.K. government's scientific pandemic influenza group on behaviors outright admits that they use psychological techniques to manipulate the public into fearing the scamdemic, a move that some of the panel members called totalitarian. And no one bats an eyelid. Now, he has links to each one of these examples. You can check out the accompanying articles and see if this rings true or not. <clears throat> Perhaps the most insidious part of the fifth-generation info wars that has become so normalized that everyone knows it's happening, but no one thinks of it as warfare. Of course, everything is advertising and propaganda, and of course it's being used to manipulate our behavior. That's just how the world works, isn't it? But James Corbett says we ignore the real nature of the info war at our own peril. After all, I've often observed that this is a war for your mind and that the most contested battle space in the world is the space between your ears. Now, you might have thought that I meant metaphorically, but actually I mean it quite literally, which brings us to neurological warfare. He says, if you listen to Dr. James Giordano speak about without listening to what he's saying, you get the impression that he's merely an articulate, well-informed scientist who's passionate about his research. When you do listen to what he's saying, however, or even just look at his PowerPoint slides, like the NeuroST for NSID slide that he includes in this article, you realize that he is Dr. Strangelove. Or if not Dr. Strangelove himself, then at least Dr. Strangelove's spokesperson. But it's not nuclear Armageddon that motivates Giordano. It's what he calls weapons of mass disruption. The various technologies for neurological intervention that the U.S. military and militaries around the world are developing. These include, in Giordano's well-rehearsed pattern, the drugs, bugs, toxins, and devices that can either enhance or disrupt the cognitive functions of their target. Like the high central nervous system aggregation nanoparticulates that, according to Giordano, clump in the brain or in the vasculature. Sorry, (laughs) I'm not uh, fluent in medical speak. In the vasculature that create essentially what looks like hemorrhagic diathesis. Now, as sci-fi as this sounds, he insists these nanoparticulates and many, many other horrific neurological weapons are already being worked on. 
And just in case you didn't get the point, you'll notice he illustrates his slide with an image of a human brain in the crosshairs of one of these neurological weapons. Now, there's nothing hard to understand about the picture that's being painted here. We are at war with an enemy that is literally targeting our brains. And yet again, it isn't just the literal use of neurological weapons by conventional militaries in the conventional warfare settings that we, the largely unwitting combatants of fifth-generation war on everyone, have to worry about. He reminds us about avowed technocrat Elon Musk trying to sell his Neuralink brain chip technology to the hipster crowd as a cool and sexy way to upgrade your cognition, or so that the coming AI godhead will have mercy on us, something like that. Anyway, you should totally stick the Neuralink in your head at your earliest opportunity and definitely don't ask any questions about why 15 of the 23 macaque monkeys that Neuralink was using as test animals in their brain-machine interface experiment have dropped dead. To anyone not yet a victim of the information warfare operation designed to prepare humanity for the coming transhuman dystopia, all of this sounds insane. But for those who have fallen for the Infowars psyop of the enemies, of the enemy rather, these types of mind-altering technologies are exactly as advertised. Exciting opportunities to upgrade the the feeble biological wetware we call our brain. But if you think you can avoid the biological aspect of the fifth generation war by simply avoiding the brain chip, you're out of luck. You're also going to have to deal with biological warfare. Now, the biological warfare narrative is understandably back at the forefront of the public consciousness in recent years. Not just because of the scandemic, but also because of the the questions being raised by U.S.-backed Ukrainian biolabs and whatever work they may or may not be doing on Russia's doorstep. Now, he says, if, if you're... Uh, if we're only thinking of biowarfare in conventional military terms, we neglect the much, much wider operation to manipulate, control, and weaponize all aspects of our environment, our food supply, even our genome itself, for the purposes of the ruling oligarchs. And this fifth-generation biological warfare against us includes the mRNA and DNA and genetically modified adenovirus vector vaccines that have been normalized over the last two years, and which is the miraculously lucky companies that bet it all on this technology like to brag, is reprogramming the software of life. Also, the genetically modified organism, both GMO crops and GMO animals, now being unleashed upon the world in an uncontrolled experiment that puts our health and the very future of the biosphere in jeopardy. Also, the push toward lab-based food, in quotation marks, being funded by the usual eugenicist billionaires, which threatens to sever humanity from the natural abundance of the earth, making us dependent on an increasingly shrinking number of companies for our food supply and ultimately to drive us toward a Soylent Green-style future. Now, he says, when and if you do put the pieces of this puzzle together and seek to warn people en masse that they're under attack... Your ability to resist this agenda will be predicated on your ability to use your accumulated resources or your wealth to foster communities of resistance. But don't worry. The enemy has that covered, too, through economic warfare. Now, I'm going to skip over the, the economic warfare part. You're already feeling the pinch of this every time you gas up your car, every time you go to the grocery store. Just understand that this perfect control of humanity down to the level of being able to witness and ultimately to allow or disallow any transaction between individuals at any time represents the highest point of the technocracy and one of the key objectives of the fifth generation war itself. And as this nightmare comes closer and closer to reality, it all seems hopeless, which he says that's exactly the point, though. 
And he says, hopefully you get the point. There is a world war being waged right now. It's a fifth generation war or whatever you want to call it. And it's being waged across every domain simultaneously. It's a war for full spectrum dominance of every battlefield and every terrain from the farthest reaches of the globe and beyond to the inner spaces of your body, even to your innermost thoughts. And it's a war on you. Recognizing this task we face seems nearly insurmountable. How are we to fight back in a war that the majority of the people don't even realize is taking place? How do you fight back against an enemy that spent decades refining its weapons of economic and military and technological and biological control? You know, you frame it like this, and yeah, it appears pretty hopeless, but therein lies the key. Our perception that it is our duty to fight back against the enemy in their war, on their battlefield, on their terms of engagement, <clears throat> is itself a narrative frame. And that narrative itself is a weapon being wielded against the battle for our minds. So the idea is we can only overcome this by creating our own table our own economy, our own communities of interest. And this is going to require the long and difficult task of increasing our independence from authoritarian uh, systems in every domain, whether it be the information domain, the food domain, the health domain, the monetary domain, the mental domain, and every other contested battle space in this all-out fifth-generation war. Easier said than done, of course, but there is no alternative. The only winning move is not to play their game to become an unplayable piece on their chessboard. I'm Brian Hyde. This is the Disciples of Liberty.